0: Good morning. 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 You know, I don't know whether you're an old movie fan or not. I am. I uh, find it to be a wonderful solace in a world of current media to go back to things that were made before 1965. Uh, I don't know what happened after 1965, but uh, I seem to enjoy things less. Uh, But there is one strange thing that will often happen as I'm watching a movie from the 40s or the 50s, and that is that they will make a joke or have a vignette or some sort of trope that is really out of rhythm with our current world and the way we say things and do things and what we would say directly to someone. Uh, For instance, you know, in some old movies you might find uh, in a comic way, Uh, Cary Grant, I just saw this the other day, uh, take his hand and put it on the face of a woman and push her. And it's meant for comedy in the movie. And you're like, yeah, that would not be funny in real life or if it happened today. But for whatever reason, that was considered humorous back then. It's just, it's just, uh, it's sort of offbeat, if you will. Or uh, maybe this is more true to you if you're not an old movie fan. If you are sitting having a meal with someone uh, who you are enjoying a conversation, they're fair of face, but somewhere along the way in the meal, they have gotten ketchup or something else smeared on the side of their face, and you're painfully aware of it, and they're completely unaware of it. And they continue to, and it's really bad if they're talking to you about something serious, and and all you're doing is staring at their cheek where this stain is, and it's just out of sync uh, with the way you expect them to look. I think we come to this text, familiar as it may be, uh, for many of you. Uh, John three sixteen, a verse uh, that many who grew up in the church memorized as kids. I think. I, I memorize it in the King James, so only begotten was in there. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but we memorize this. But in our current world in 2024, there is some discontinuity for us. How can we, in this same passage, talk about the love of God and condemnation of people? That seems out of sync for us. And how do we deal with that? And what I love is here in John chapter 3, there is, no, uh, there is no contradiction. There is no conflict between these ideas. And so to be honest, I want us to deal with this. Because whether you feel it or not, the people around us do feel that tension. How can God be loving and people be condemned? How do those two things go together? And so let's just look at this text. We're going to look at three things as we look at this text. One, I want us to look at what this text says about the nature of God's love. Secondly, I want us to see what it says about the nature of condemnation. And thirdly, I want us to see the tremendous offer of love that is here before us. So first, the nature of God's love. It's right there at the beginning. For God so loved the world. That is a vast measurement of God's love. His love is not small, it is big. Now, that expression, God so loved the world, would, to be honest, pull people up short in the first century uh, no matter what persuasion you happen to be. If you were from the Greek and Hellenistic world, The idea of the gods loving the world would be completely foreign to you. If you have ever in your classical education, or just for fun, or in the Clash of the Titans in the movie that you may have watched as a child, you know that the gods of the Greek world were, uh, let's just say, not universal loving beings. They were ones who played favorites. They might have loved one individual, but they'd wipe everybody out for their sake. And if one of the gods loved that individual, other gods in jealousy and strife would seek to cause all kinds of trouble for that individual. That was the idea of how the divine interacted with humanity. Uh, In that world, you would have said, why would the gods have loved the world? The world is corrupt and evil. But if you were from a Jewish background, one in which you had grown up being familiar uh, with the idea that God does love, you would have thought about his love in a much narrower band, that God loves his people, his particular people, the nation of Israel, the Jews. And you would have said, that is the extent of God's love. Everyone else, God has no use for. So when you you hear this expression, God so loved the world, whether from a Greek or a Jewish background, you would have said, say what? That seems a little bit of an exaggeration. Now I say that just to bring us to where we probably are here in, in our current age and moment, and that is... That we think about the idea of God loving the world as sort of just a matter of fact. Well, of course He is. Of course He does. Aren't we great? Right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that the general idea that the world and the people in it are just so awesome and lovely and kind and good and and uh, you know generally reflect in some way you know positivity that of course God would would love us. We're so lovable, right? Uh, now I know. I just want to be honest with us, while our world I think does have that general idea, we generally only apply it to ourselves and the people we like particularly, right? When we think about how good the world is, we're thinking about a smaller and smaller group these days, aren't we? Like me, maybe my spouse, maybe two out of three of my children, right? Maybe one of my neighbors right? You know, we've kind of narrowed that band down. Uh, You know, I don't know. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, I don't think that at all. I think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. You know, I don't know. I don't know what perspective you're coming from. But in this context, it is an amazing statement that it says that God so loved the world. But of course, when we use the word love, we need to be more specific on what we mean by that word. You know, I think that when we are young, and I think it flows into when we are older, we use the word love rather indiscriminately. I love Dr. Pepper, right? You know, I love uh, the Denver Broncos. You know, I love when it snows. I love when it doesn't snow. I love when it's sunny. You know, and we use this expression so often, I love that video on TikTok. You know, truthfully, I have never seen a video on TikTok. I throw it out every now and then, because I know there are people who know what that is, and it's just sort of my way of making a connection with you. I, I've seen videos on YouTube, you know, and that's because of my generation. You know, I've actually seen music videos on MTV, and there are many of them that I loved. You know, I know some of you are like, they show music videos on MTV? No, they don't. But they did. That's how it all started way back when. But we would say, I love that. I love that band. I love that song. And because of that, the word love really doesn't have much meaning, right? It doesn't have much punch to it. When it says here that God so loved the world, it goes on and it gives us an understanding of what kind of love we're talking about. It says that he so loved the world that he gave his only son gave his only son. Here, this is a reference to Jesus Christ leaving glory, taking on flesh, coming into this world. That he did not come just on his own initiative as God the Son, but God the Father sent him into the world. He sent him to be a human being, to live with all of the struggles and difficulties and unpleasantness, unpleasantness, unpleasantness is that we struggle with and yet he came and not only that But he came to do something extraordinary. We saw this referred to back in verse 14 and 15. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And there when he talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, he's talking about his own death on a cross. And so when we think about the nature of God's love, we need to remember that it is not only big, but it is sacrificial. It is costly. It is something that is not cheap or free. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 uh, says it uh, beautifully. I think I have it, Romans chapter 8. I know where that is one way or the other. Uh, It says, I'm going to start in verse 31. Paul is trying to encourage people who have put faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, Paul is making a comparison. He says, if God in his love was sacrificial to the utmost degree, how will he not also continue to love us and care for us and show his mercy and grace to us? Why would I feel insecure when God's love is not only so big but cost him so much? And that is so crucial for us to understand. I think sometimes even people who are followers of Jesus Christ forget both the scope of God's love and they forget the sacrificial nature of God's love. And so we therefore treat it cheaply. We act like it doesn't make a difference. We, act, we take it for granted. We take it in stride. But this verse reminds us. That the nature of God's love is immense. It's infinite, if you will. I love uh, how uh, Paul applies it when he's writing to a young pastor, Timothy. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, he says, When we understand this, we look at the world differently. When we understand the vastness and sacrificial nature of God's love, our heart beats for other people outside of our immediate family or tribe or nation or language or ethnicity. He says it this way in First Timothy chapter 2. Here, Paul is saying, when you understand the bigness and the costliness of God's love, you want other people to know it. All kinds of people. Isn't that amazing? I love it. When he is telling Timothy, at the moment he is telling Timothy to pray for kings and those in authority, we were talking about a bunch of pagan Roman rulers. That's who he was saying to pray for. Pray for these people who are putting to death people of faith. Pray for them. Why? Because God's love is bigger than our love. And it is more sacrificial in nature than our love. Think about it right now. I know this is an election year. I don't want to step on any toes. But sitting in this room, there are some of you who have decided that it is okay to hate a candidate on the other side of the election landscape. And you have justified it in a thousand ways because of stuff they've said or how they've said it or what they've done or what they believe in. And here in God's word it says pray for them. Pray for them. Why? First of all, so the people of God can continue to have freedom and liberty to worship him the way he prescribes in his word. But secondly, because God's love is big enough, big enough for the salvation of that obnoxious jerk on the other side of the political landscape. And as well as for the obnoxious jerk on your side of the political landscape. I know, they're all lovely. They're Sunday school teachers, right? No, they're like me, rotten, stinking sinners. But God's love is big enough and sacrificial enough to save even the most unlikely people. The presidents and premiers of countries around the world who continue to do violence and harm. We need to pray that God will move in his supernatural, vast, loving, sacrificial way to change the hearts and minds of men and women all over the world. That's the nature of God's love. Secondly, though, and maybe more awkwardly, we need to deal with the nature of condemnation. As soon as we read this verse, I think many of us uh, who may have grown up with for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, we love that part. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoa, why are we talking about perishing? Why don't we just keep it on God's love? You know, it's kind of like a children's program uh, where we never deal with any, uh, any difficult topic. You know, now uh, it's, uh, it's great because you can actually tell by the rating they put on stuff whether they just keep it saccharine or they deal with any kind of difficult issue whatsoever. It goes from like Y7 to Y13 or something like that. And I don't know what you mentioned, but I guarantee if you mention perishing and judgment, you'll get it up to a Y13 on the rating. And we're like, why did John throw that in there? Why did he have to throw this into perishing? Well, he tries to help us understand in verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now, let's deal with it. What is the nature of condemnation according to this passage? How do we understand it? Well, first of all, we understand that when uh, we are understanding the mission of Jesus in his incarnation, that is his coming into the world, the taking on of flesh, his primary mission was not to bring judgment. Now, for those of you who are Bible scholars, I know I have a couple in here. You know that later on in the book of John... Jesus will say, it is for judgment that I have come into the world. He will say, all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son. In other words, Jesus is not saying judgment is not part of the messianic job description in totality. What John 3, 16 through 21 is saying is that is not the reason he was sent. He was sent primarily, that means of first importance, to bring salvation, not condemnation. So what is the nature of condemnation? Notice how this text says it. I love it. It, it, uh, it says it in verse 18 so beautifully. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already. That, that word helps us. It means that when Jesus came into the world, he came to a world full of condemned men, women, and children. There was nobody who was living a life free of condemnation. That is just the way human beings are. And you say, but wait a second. Why would human beings, all men, women, and children, be under condemnation? How could they already be condemned? And the answer to that is twofold. One, historically, and and secondly, is uh, in real time, practically. First of all, historically, all humanity, men, women, and children, are under condemnation uh, because of what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. God had created a beautiful world, a world in which he was in perfect harmony uh, with the man and the woman that he had made, and they enjoyed perfect fellowship, and that Humanity had the ability to please God, to continue to obey him, and they also had the ability to disobey him. And what did they choose to do? Well, in Genesis 3, it tells us that a serpent comes along and tempts the woman to take of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree called the the tree of good and evil. I do know this. I have read it once or twice. And she says, well, we're not supposed to touch it or we'll die. And he says, you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will know good and evil. And so she looks at it and she says, wow, that that fruit looks good for eating. But it also looks good for wisdom, for knowledge. And what was going on was humanity had a decision to make. Would they trust God? Would they obey God? Would they follow God or would they seek to be independent from God? And so what they decided to do was to eat of the fruit in order to be independent, to effectively be their own gods. And because of this, every single child that was born from this original couple is born not able to do good, but only able to do evil and disobey God. That is historically the problem. So every single human being descended from our first parents, Adam and Eve, are born with this problem called sin. And the corollary problem of sin is that we are under condemnation. That if God treats us justly, he treats us like we deserve, that he will treat us with judgment and condemnation, but secondly, real-time and practical, it's not like we just have that historical problem. We actually are a nasty lot down to the last one of us. Now, I know, you're like, it's easy for you to say that up there. Okay, so I'll start with me. I am a nasty lot. I don't do what God tells me to do. We're going through the Ten Commandments now and the part of the New City Catechism we're in. We just covered the first three. Let's just measure ourselves and see how we're doing with those. That's, all, that's just under a third of the Ten Commandments. Only love God. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do you do on that? You, does he have your complete and uncompromising love? Or secondly, don't make any idols. Have you ever put anything in front of God? You know, your money, your retirement, your security, your peace, your health, your relationships, you know. Or, you know, back in the old days, they always talked about cars. I don't know whether it's just because of where I grew up in the South that we were big into muscle cars and so cars were idols. I don't know. I mean, maybe you're a Chevy idolater. Maybe you're a Ford idolater. Maybe you're a Jeep idolater. I have a person on my staff I fear might be. (laughs) Neither here nor there. Every time I bring up his Jeep, he, he, a little tear starts coming out of his eye. I, I don't know. If it only had a hemi, right, Carl? But anyway, he knows I'm talking about him, right? The most loved man in this church for good reason. Uh, right, but idolatry is putting anything above God. How do you do with that? And you say, well, I don't, I'm not perfect. Okay, then you're under condemnation. Thirdly, you know, it says don't ever tr- take his name in vain. You know, don't treat him lightly. Don't, don't, don't take him for granted. How do you do with that? Oh, wow, I don't think I want to look at the next seven. I feel like I'm already doing badly. You see, practically, we sin in thought, word, and deed in every way. And so just in our nature, we're under condemnation. That is our current status. That is not something that God has to bestow on us. That is something we choose for ourselves every single day of our life. It's the reality Of our existence. I love the way John says it down in verse 19 and 20. He says, It becomes evident even in the way we respond when truth comes our way. Notice he says, This is judgment, the light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their work. Works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the lights, lest his work should be exposed. Here, there are two things that he's saying that that absolutely show that we know we're under condemnation. And that is when truth comes, we tend to minimize it, we tend to hide from it, we tend to shine it on other people rather than ourselves. In other words, I'm not so hip on the light because it shows things the way they really are. Now, this is where my wife and I have a little bit of a debate, in our our bathroom. We have one of those magnifying mirrors, which is bad enough, but the magnifying mirror has a light around the edge of it. And do you know the only thing worse than seeing the pores on your skin at 10 times magnification is shining light on it while you do that. Now I know for those of you who are 16, it's a delightful experience. You look at yourself in the light with 10 times magnifications, and you think to yourself, if only everyone had skin so perfect. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Or perhaps as a 16 year old, you hate looking in that mirror too because of the blemishes and other things like that. You see, we tend to want to maybe Have that date in a dim room, you know. Have you ever noticed that the best date spots are very dim? It's because relationships would never move forward in the broad light of day, right? We all need all the help we can get. We don't want to show too much. Here, when John is describing the nature of condemnation, he says we show it in the fact that when God's truth comes along, we tend to want to shield ourselves from it. We don't really want anyone telling us what's true when we know we're living in rebellion against that truth. Why? I love it the way he describes it. Uh, He says, lest their work should be exposed, our pride will not allow us to sit under the light because we're afraid that we will have our shame exposed. Now, perhaps, Uh, In our world, we live in a little bit of the emperor's new clothes kind of world, right? Uh, Yes, it is true that people generally don't want too much light. No, not that much revelation, not that much truth from God because it shows the reality and it brings up their shame. But we also have this other tack, and we call the darkness light. That's the world in which we live today. And so we're sitting in a dark room, and we say, no, it's perfectly bright. It's perfectly bright. If you don't agree with me that it's perfectly bright, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. No. See, in other words, we call the darkness light now, so it's just, but it's essentially the same thing. We don't want anyone showing us the truth. That is our own nature. And because of that, we're under condemnation. Now, I need to be careful. Sitting in this room right now are three people, maybe more, who are like, that's right. Sick them, God. Right? There are only three of you. I don't, you know, there might be more. But there is this instinct sometimes as we see maybe more clearly the sin of those out there more than I see the sin in here that I get into that, get them. Kind of like God's my pit bull. And I'm ready to release him on all of those people who stand condemned already, but If we have that attitude, it is far from the heart of God. We need to see that as we look at this condemnation, notice in this passage, we cannot get away from the reality that this is not something God delights in. I mean, he sent his son so that people can avoid condemnation. He sent his son in love because he wants people to escape judgment, I love it. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 33, we read this in verse 11. Uh, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear that? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And then it's almost like he's pleading, come back, come back, or Perhaps a more famous passage, Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, while we all, by our history and our experience, may be already under condemnation, God delights in people escaping that repenting and believing and turning from it. You do realize, as we just sit here and pause, last week we had a break from our study in John uh, because last week we talked about our partnership with people all over the world in missions. And why do we invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in the spread of the gospel around the world, but that we don't delight in the thought of people perishing, but we're willing to put our money, our time, our gifts, and our efforts into seeing people who are currently under condemnation hearing about the good news of Jesus and being rescued from condemnation. We invest because we are reflecting the heart of God who does not take delight in the death of the wicked. Here we see this so beautifully expressed that God loved the world and gave his son so people will escape condemnation. The condemnation they're already experiencing. And so let's talk lastly about this offer of love. I love it. Do you, let's look at this offer of love in different ways. One, the constant refrain of believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish. I love that. Whoever believes, verse 18, in him is not condemned. I I love that. Or back up in verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I love that. I love that for two reasons. One, I love it because it shows the turn from our current reality to our potentiality, from the existence that we live as sinful, rebellious creatures who are rightfully deserving condemnation from a holy and just God to a bunch of people who are rescued from it. What is the agency that God uses to accomplish this? The reason why I love this is because what we imagine it is, is us pulling ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps us trying harder us cleaning up less having a us having a moral reformation and we say that's how we go from being condemned to being right with God is we clean up our act. We get it right. We clean our language up and our actions up and we we just turn off the internet altogether and and then we'll be okay. And that's not what he says. He doesn't say that those who move from condemnation to salvation do it by working or their effort, but they do it how? By believing. By believing What is believing? It is a passive thing. It is receiving what someone else has done for you and offered to you. It is holding, only opening your hand and saying thank you to the one who has done all the work necessary for you to have this amazing future and present. And all you do is believe. And believing really isn't doing anything it is receiving what someone else has done for you. He is so emphatic that it's not about what you do, but about what God and his love has done for you. And you have received by faith. You have said, that is my only hope. And I love it. He says, when we, when we do that, the end of verse 16, should, we should not perish if we believe in him, but have eternal life. The verb tense there is present tense. That means when you believe, eternal life begins today. It begins when you believe. And you say, well, I thought eternal life was that thing way out there after I was dead or after the end of the world. And you're right. It is, but it starts right now. You can begin to have eternal life, which is different not only in longevity, but in quality. And so, yes, eternal life is a life that goes on and on and on and on and on, but it is one that has a different quality to it. One that says my life is not just about my own efforts and my attempts and my past, but it is about the eternity that God has given to me in Jesus Christ. And, you know, that leads to a third thing. I love it. Isn't this great? Verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, that word saved, maybe you grew up with that term. I did. You know, and it was just a way of us identifying that you know, it's basically a synonym to Christian. You know, so we'd say, well, are they saved? And that means they're a Christian, they're not A non-Christian, so they're saved. And, And it's funny, when you use a word enough, you don't think about what it means. But the word saved means rescued, pulled out of peril. It means to be taken from danger to safety. Saved is talking about a transformation that God accomplishes in our life when we believe in him. But let me put it this way. I don't know uh, whether you've ever been out in the open ocean on a small boat before. I've had that opportunity a few times, uh, usually fishing with somebody who knew what they were doing and I felt comfortable with being on a very small boat in the ocean. But you get out far enough and you can't see the shore anymore and you're bobbing up and down and you're leaning over the side of the boat a fair amount uh, doing fishing stuff. You can tell that's not my primary occupation. And, uh, and, a, and a big wave comes around, and you do this number. Have you ever had that happen? And you're, you almost feel like your bottom slightly leaves the seat on which you're, se- you're, se- you're seated. And it gives you just that little shaky moment of danger, like I'm out here in the middle of the ocean in a 20-foot boat. This may not be intelligent, <laughs> right? And, and I can only imagine... If something happened, and a wave came along, and instead of just rocking the boat, it flipped the boat, which would not be that hard to do. And then I'm out in the middle of the ocean with just me, and maybe my friend, who may or may not be paying attention to me, bobbing up and down in the ocean. That is perilous. You hear stories about that. Sometimes people who've been in the ocean for days on end. You know, I can only imagine. That when those people who've been bobbing up and down in the ocean, nobody in sight. And they're finally found and they see that boat steaming toward them. And they feel those, those arms reaching out and grabbing them. And they're assisted as, by being pulled into the boat. You know, I can only imagine them saying, oh, wow, how's your day going? Going pretty good? Good. I've been doing fine. Thanks. Yeah, it's been great. Now, I have a feeling there's a little bit more of, a, of an emotional release. My suspicion is that you start crying because you realize how close to death you actually were. And it's not until you're safe that you allow your emotions to catch up with the perilous nature of your situation. In other words, when someone rescues you, you, you realize just how amazing it is that you're not in danger anymore. Goodness, I don't even have to go out to the middle of the ocean. I can just drive down Powers right after it snowed. I can't remember if I told you guys this, but one of those Sundays I was driving down the road, and I probably have said this if I have, forgive me. And we're coming to church. We're looking sharp, or as sharp as I can look. Anyway, Karen always looks sharp. And I'm trucking along. i got to get to church. they got to do my sound check and I feel the back wheels of my all-wheel-drive car come out from under the car, and it begins to slide, and I do, I, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to gently turn into the slide, I'm not going to hit the brakes, I'm going to do everything people from here tell me to do, and the car continued to slide across the three southbound lanes of Powers, and then through the median between the southbound lane and the northbound lane of Powers, and then through two-and-a-half lanes of the northbound lane on Powers. And I'm just trying to come and do this for y'all. And I mean, I am thinking, this is going to make the weirdest funeral service ever. Chris and Karen are already dressed for their funeral. I mean, depending on how the, you know, I mean, they they might have to give us a new shirt or something, right? And I'm just sliding across. And when that car stopped in the road and was able to actually go back across the median, back across a couple lanes of southbound traffic, and I was able to get here, i got to tell you, I was pretty thankful. But I was rattled. I mean, I was thankful. I am not one of the many banged-up cars that just lives on the side of the road here in Colorado Springs. My, my dead, cold body wasn't just found several days later by someone trying to steal the stereo out of the car, right? I don't know how that works. I was thankful because I was in peril and then I was safe. And I love what this says, you are not in peril anymore. So what is the implication? That we believe we have currently eternal life, and that should give us a sense of freedom that we are okay, that, that things are under God's control, that He loves us, He cares for us, that we are no longer in fear of condemnation, but we are safe. And what is our mental and emotional response to that? Do we think like people who've been rescued, who've been saved? But lastly, I love it. It's expressed in verse 21 in the way we actually live our lives. It changes us. Not only does it give us a freedom, but it actually motivates us to live our life in a different way. I love it. Verse 21 literally would read, whoever does the truth. You know, and of course that's an awkward expression in English. So we, we translate it, whoever does what is true. Uh, We come to the light, why? To show off, to brag, to say, look at how great I am. You know, I'm all cleaned up. No. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, what we do in response to this tremendous, sacrificial, vast love of God is that we believe that we are currently enjoying eternal life, that we are free from the threat of condemnation and judgment. And so now we do what we do, not in our strength, but through the strength that God provides in the Holy Spirit. We live in the light as a way of showing that God's at work in us. He's at work in us And in truth, we are in him and he is in us. And we enjoy this union that is demonstrated in the way we think, in the way we speak, in the way we act. But ultimately, we take no credit whatsoever for that result. But we say that's because of him and what he's doing in us. I love it. Here, John has no problem. Uh, with the idea of condemnation and love being put together. For him, it is not an awkward moment in an old movie. It is not a streak of ketchup on a pretty girl's face. It is hand and glove that always go together because God's love is a saving love. Now, I, I am done with us looking at John, but before we stop, let me just say to you, this passage martin luther called john 3:16 the bible in miniature like it, it sums up everything that the bible is about and so here when i sum up i want you to know that today is a terrific opportunity for you to stop feeling afraid alienated or like you have to keep on the process of your moral improvement for God to like you. Today is a day to recognize that while in your nature you might be in trouble as a rebel against God, today is an opportunity for you to know once and for all that He loves you. And you can look at Jesus and see how much and how deeply He loves you. And you can Have your life change from peril to safety by believing in him. By just opening your mind and your heart and saying, God, you love me enough to give your son, I receive your son. I want my life to be about your son. I want to know your son better. I want to live the way he shows. And by believing your whole eternity, will be changed. There are some of you who may have believed years and years ago, but you're living like you're still in peril. You still are living like condemnation and perishing is your reality rather than love and salvation. And you need to remember, why does that happen? Because we think it's up to us and our ability and our efforts. And you've forgotten whether it is the day you first believe, which I pray it is for some of you, or it is the 10,000th day that you believed. It's always about Jesus and only Jesus. Again, look to him who was lifted up. Believe in him that you can experience the joy and freedom of eternal life. And lastly, let's say you, you're like, well, I've done A. I think I'm, I'm, by God's grace I'm seeking to do B. Then third, tell somebody else about this. Our world doesn't want to hear about condemnation. It doesn't want to hear about that reality, but it is a reality. Us living in denial about it, us not mentioning it, doesn't change the reality of it. We can't keep saying peace, peace when there is no peace. We need to tell people the peril of being without God in this world, but let us do it with a tear, for our desire is that they will know how to be right with God through believing in him. Let's do that individually and corporately in our communities, in our small groups, in our ministries. May we exist as a church to let this world know, whether it's Colorado Springs, the West, and the world, that God loves them so much that he sent his son. And we want you to know him and believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for how kind you are to us, to end such a concentrated passage passage to give us so much truth about who you are and about your love for this condemned world and all of us condemned people in it. Lord, while our heads may spin on the propriety of the reality of condemnation, may we instead rest upon the the infinity of your love and grace toward us. And may we embrace Jesus. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, may we cling to him. Lord, use us to reflect your goodness, glory, and love in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.